You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. 8.36 Central African Time and that time of the evening where we join Anwar Kasim on his segment uh, Drive-In with Anwar. Anwar, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this beautiful uh, Tuesday evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, brother Shafad. You know, just a beautiful, as you mentioned, day. It was relatively hot, but alhamdulillah, I think we're used to it here. The humidity in South Africa, in Durban, especially in Stringle Beach. And one would think that because we live near the ocean, we get that cool breeze. But how unright they are, because really, the humidity really gets to us. But alhamdulillah, very, very beautiful days, you know, now. You know, uh, one of the things that when we in our younger days, Spingo Beach was full of jungles, sugarcane fields, a lot of trees and so forth. And, uh, you know, it could be the hottest day, but we had shade all over where you walk. You remember the gum trees uh, where you live, I mean, uh, at the grounds. They took those trees out, uh, Anwar, and all those things. And perhaps adding uh, to the heat factor is it's a Pingo Beach now. Uh, Three-quarters of a Sapingo Beach is a concrete jungle, and perhaps that's uh, adding to the humidity and the heat factor, Anwar. You know, most definitely. I'm a person with greenery, and that is the reason, you know, I'm one of the very few people, I think, in Durban who has actually an Inly tree or tamarind tree on my property, a massive tree, you know. I love greenery, and I somehow feel, you know, when you listen to the birds, you know, the chirping, and you find you're just surrounded by this tranquility. Some nights I just sit, you know, when it's very hot in the veranda, and alhamdulillah, you know, you get that peace of mind that quite is exactly the same that you get in the masjid, you know, and it's hard to get that. So I don't, I'm not one for overdevelopment, I will put it, you know, because really speaking, we all know the, the catastrophe and, you know, the wrongs of the ozone layer that we have already done. And that is the reason, if you look at the intensity of heat we have today, in comparison to the time we were small, it is so much more intense nowadays. And this seems to be a global issue because really speaking, you know, many years ago I was in Saudi Arabia and the temperature was about 68 degrees, I remember. And we did not feel this amount of humidity. But today, at 35, 37 degrees here in South Africa, we, we feel that burning, scorching heat, you know, penetrating your skin. So obviously, you know, a, a lot has changed in the last few years. And we have in this progressive change for the negative, especially when it comes to our climate. So that is, I suppose, persistent in, you know, in the, what we are doing in our everyday life, as you mentioned, you know, the concrete jungle that we're surrounded by. No, absolutely, Anwar. And, uh, you know, it's sad indeed uh, that uh, everything is uh, dissipating and uh, maybe greed of man, you know, uh, affecting uh, the jungle and the ozone layer and so forth. Well, we're looking into our first topic uh, this evening, which is, uh, you know, they say that the uh, Ford exports a new Ranger from South Africa to over 100 markets globally. I mean, that's a sizable market to have, uh, Anwar. Tell us more. Definitely, if we look at the Ford Ranger, Ford itself, the company Ford, you know, uh, came out with relatively good packages. And you find, found that there was abundance of Ford Rangers, especially Rangers, you know. You, you had these good packages where you could lease these vehicles and, you know, get ownership. And they have these good things that's going on, you know, with the package deals. 
And then you find a drop in sales, you know. So obviously, when it comes to from the business acumen side of it, you find that they have to think out of the box. So they've decided to actually spend a total of 15.8 billion in the expansion program, of which 600 million was actually spent to upgrade the motor, the engine the department itself. And they actually allocate, or I suppose the analysts of the company actually decide that, you know what, we have a market, 100 globally, where we could export an average of 200,000 cars or vehicles, uh, you know, annually. So I suppose that is the uh, the goal at the end of it. So Honda, you know, uh, at the moment, if you look at Ford itself, the company, it employs roughly around 60,000 people. So with this new export market, they, they intend to employ another 1,250 extra people you know so all this is taking place and what actually puts Ford in the market because the competitor obviously is VW you've got the Amarok you, you've got so many different vehicles that's coming out you know you've got the Toyota obviously they're number one on the list so they had a lot of competitive force behind them you know so it was a good decision and you know especially with the weakening land all the time so when it comes to the export quality yes definitely you know you will find that there will be reimbursements quite a few aspects on export so they actually will actually pick up again because we all know quite like four company closed down in India there's quite a few countries they were shutting down their markets you know they just kept a limited number of motor plants uh, you know at reachable length but at the same time there's a lot of job losses so with this new innovation that they've come out with you know you find that this uh, Ford will actually strengthen the, the global market will strengthen its brand itself and uh, you know, with the job opportunities and the creation that actually is taking place, you know, it's actually an influx to South Africa. So, yes, it will actually help the economy very little. You know, I remember the Ford uh, Bantam, and uh, before the Ford Bantam, uh, the Bantam, uh, Bantam, yeah, it was the other Ford, you know, the uh, 70 model, I think you know what I'm talking about, was very popular with uh, many people, and it was uh, like something that could go on and on, you know, uh, maintenance-free and so forth. Only thing I think the body used to rust. And uh, but uh, Ford seems to have made a very big statement with the with the Ranger, keeping in with the tradition. But the Bantam uh, perhaps was uh, a model that flopped. Uh, Anwar, you know, it's hard to really say. I, I think what happened was the introduction of all Samco vehicles, Ford and Mazda put together. You know, if we go back a little in history and time we'll find that uh, they, their vehicles had chassis tags, plates itself. And initially the sales, they, they, they were introduced, if you look at the Ford Bantam, a lot of those Mazdas and 323s as such, they, they were introduced in the market relatively well-priced. They were beautiful vehicles. But the problem was the set of the vehicle was number one on the list for years thereafter. So people tend to got afraid, obviously, and this, they sent away from it. I remember that period of time, Volkswagen tried it for a period of two years, where they made vehicles from 91 to, I think, in 93, in the two-year period where they only used chassis, exactly like Samco. And uh, the vehicle failed because the VW was so high, you know? So that was the, until the government stepped in at that period of time and told Volkswagen, you need to stop that, you need to restamp your chassis. And then the sales obviously declined. You know, so exactly the same happened to uh, Ford or Mazda at a period of time. But they managed to somehow outlast it to, to a point where they realized they couldn't pull it any further. And then they started stamping the chassis. And then they became a little stagnant on sales also. But 
obviously, we don't go to yesteryear cars with the Ford Cafe in Granada. But if you look at the Ford Laser, the Danton Bucky was okay with workhouse. But obviously, it's, it's, you couldn't compare that to the 1400 Bucky of the time. That was a true workhouse that could do a million kilometers trouble free, you know. And then I, I would say they fared quite well in the market because it wasn't a top niche market at that period of time when they were introduced. It was aimed more for the average or the person out there on the street. So it, it was an affordable vehicle also. Well, on our segment, Anwar, driving with Anwar, we always keep uh, tabs on uh, the you know car sales and uh, uh, tell us uh, what were the South Africa's top-selling uh, car brands in January, Anwar. You know, definitely Toyota will take it without a doubt. You know, Toyota was number one on the list. Then we just followed, obviously, by Volkswagen. You know, two home-based uh, vehicles that's manufactured in our country. And uh, the amazing part. If you look at 2023 itself, the beginning in January, which was last month, you know, sales actually rose by 4.8%. And in total, they sold over just over 43,000 cars. Now, one needs to consider also that aspect. We've got to add load shedding into this. We have to add the fact that we're having a problem with spares or parts when it comes to electronics also from China. Everything to do with China or neighboring countries. We must also consider the fact that we had a backlog two weeks. Our transport was, uh, our shipping was actually shut down. You know, uh, so there's so many different uh, I mean, so many disadvantages we had. But with all that, a 4.8 percent increase, obviously, in the new car sales is a relatively big increase. You know, when it comes to the fact that you know we can actually look a little towards a brighter future when it comes to the car sales market. You know, so if you look at uh, uh, interest for worth sake, uh, what actually dampened this whole idea of new car uh, vehicle sales? I think eight. In the, uh, interest increases or interest rates, the rate hikes from 2021 to now, you know, and that's relatively high. And obviously, people, the names got damaged in the period of time of COVID, where they were blacklisted for unfortunate circumstances, you know, and the government did not actually step in there and give a rebate or, or give a cooling of period of time for that couple of months that he put the uh, country on lockdown. So obviously the sales were bound to drop. People had the monetary funds to actually pursue when it comes to this uh, new vehicles, whether it was cash or whether it was an installment base. But at the same period of time, because of the names were damaged, a lot of people did not qualify for new cars. And that also played a very important role in the drop of sales when it came to vehicles. Yeah, and for that, Anwar. And if you're looking at uh, load shedding or not, uh, this is what the article says, uh, load shedding or not, uh, switching to electric cars in South Africa is just a matter of time. Anwar, your BMs, your Jeep, your Mercedes-Benz, that, that Lamborghini that you got now, hey, you're going to switch to electric car very uh, electric uh, vehicles very soon, Anwar. You know, if if we go back and uh, we listen to what the news had to say, you know, South Africa has not labeled itself. Every other country, if you look at America for words, they actually said from 2020, a lot of companies said 2030, some said 2035, like America, they'll go full green, you know, they'll have full electric vehicle, hybrid vehicles. But South Africa has not commented as yet. You know, and that's the amazing part. And we supposed also be one of the global forerunners when it comes to the green piece of the green world itself. Now, when we actually have to consider the EV world itself, we all know and we all are fully aware of load shedding. Right? And the biggest problem we have, if we look back about a year or so, there's only 248 charging stations around the country. 
a size that actually accommodates about 58 million people. And if you look at the, the 248 stations, does not justify the amount of electric vehicles. Then we had a problem, if you're looking at a few years ago, some few years ago, where the government imposed a 60% tax on all imported vehicles. That is why we don't have vehicles like the Tesla actually gracing uh, uh, our shores as such. Now the government actually decided the reason to drop the import duties to 25%. So there might be an influx of it. But also the mind of the consumer is very negatively placed. Reason being, if you look at the lithium batteries itself that the vehicles take, it's worth at least half the value of the car or a little more than the value of the car. And they have a period of about eight years the lifespan of it. And then what do you do? Do you replace the vehicle or do, or do you replace the batteries? And there's no real affordable way to actually create these lithium batteries. Now if we had to go back to the disadvantage of the, uh, the stations itself, you find that the charging stations, you know, they actually there's companies that step in and try to create these fast charging systems that is actually solar-powered, you know, all around the country. So Volvo, I think, came up with about 40 or something, and each manufacturer is coming with their own stations itself. So as much as I, I think we want to actually go into electric vehicle either itself, I, I think uh, the media has portrayed a very negative impact. I think South African laws actually is very, in, you know, because if you really think about it, those who actually drive electric vehicles, it's aimed more of the, uh, at the premium base of it. And if you look at the, uh, it, you only basically save money after a good few years. You know, driving that vehicle, if you look at the cost of fuel, because the amount of money you will actually pay. So there's a lot of bias, there's a lot of negativity surrounding electric vehicles. So I'm not really sure. But if you look at uh, in 2022, for word's sake, in the first three months, they sold 1,400 electric vehicles. You know, so I, I suppose, you know, online shopping and because we have this delivery service that's going around, I think they are going to introduce a lot of electric vehicles because they are one of the main consumers of fuel. You know, so they need to actually drop their costs down. And I think if they have to introduce the electric vehicles in a small uh, scale, you'll find that people will somehow get the confidence of actually owning one. So I think the time is yet to come when it comes to electric vehicle world in, uh, in South Africa. Yeah, maybe we we may not see it. Anwar. I don't know. Allah alam. Uh, 28 South African companies to implement four-day work week on the 1st of March. Will they be marching in the right direction, Anwar? Uh, you know, generally when you look at a business, you you look you look at the economy, you look at the people, you look at the structure of the the, the country itself, you know. And what we actually trying to implement was what was actually done. There was a survey done last year in 2022 in Ireland, uh, United States of America, and Australia, and it proved successful. But you must also bear in mind the tax structure and the weight structure is totally different in these countries in comparison to South Africa. You know, here we have a thing called minimum wage as such or whatever. Now, what is expected, you know, uh, the four-day work week sounds beautiful because at the end of the day, you get three days to spend, obviously, on your, your, your free time. But what happens? Because really speaking, if you look at the economy of South Africa, you find that in the work in, working environment, when a person is displaced or gets fired from a department, very seldomly is that person really replaced. But somebody is actually cushioned with the fact of taking over his job above his actual job. So you find a person, generally when you speak around, uh, you know, to uh, the workers in South Africa, you find a person is doing two or three different people's jobs. So how do you expect a person who's working five and a half day a week to actually cut it to four days a week? 
And I, I can't really see how this will be really constructive or productive in any way, you know, because what's going to happen is fatigue is setting because they expect a 100% turnout time in whatever company. And at the same period of time, they will be actually judged according to merit when it comes to, uh, to uh, I think, Talent Bosch uh, and uh, the Boston uh, college. They will be the two institutions that actually run a trial on a six-month uh, period for the 28 companies. So also at the same period of time, it has to most probably be blue-chip companies that actually has all the ducks in one row. You can't take a standard company owned by one person with no directorship as such, who has a workforce of maybe about 50 people, you know, and expect the same to be implemented in that company. You know, so I, I really don't see how that will happen because really, if you consider something like load sharing, I know I've got friends of mine that actually has companies. And for the period of two hours when they have load sharing in the day, you find that he gives the people that lunch take is half an hour or one hour and the other hour, actually, they've got to work overtime. So they're instead of finishing five o'clock in the afternoon, they finish at six. So they cover up the time. So I really can't see how it's going to work. I, I suppose time will tell you that uh, about uh, Shabbat, but my greatest fear is uh, if we consider the amount of doors that has uh, closed, you know, since COVID and since the economy has is been crushing and since low chain has reared its head, you find that it's an, I really don't think it's appropriate to really test the market in something like this because I find that unemployment might be at a rise and at the same time, you know, it's a 50-50 chance where the company might not pick up if there's losses in this six months period of time. So I suppose, you know, uh, they're brave to, the 28 companies are quite relatively brave to actually venture out there and put their companies on the listing of four day a week. But whether they will survive it after six months, I'm not really sure. A uh, very thought-provoking uh, uh, analysis there. Full marks to you there, Anwar. And also, we know that South Africa is experiencing a critical shortage of qualified artisans. And which is a fact. I mean, even the cadre deployment and so forth, uh, they, you know, deploying people that are not even fit for the job and so forth. This is the allegations coming through. And uh, you can see what's happening uh, to uh, state-owned enterprises and uh, some of the institutes. Perhaps uh, there's some truth in this. Uh, what's your views? You know, personally, it's always been my view of we have 58 million people. And I'll give a very fine example. Many, many years ago, I used to be the refinery. I used to do costing, you know, of uh, a piping, basically, you know. I was quite young at that period of time. And I remember that period of time, there was a white gentleman for many, many years that ran the engine refinery in Tara Road in Nearbank, you know, for over close to 30 years. He ran it without an incident, he ran it efficiently, he ran it for the company to actually make profit, right? And there we have a thing where a black person comes into this year, I'm definitely not against any black person, no, don't get me wrong, but this guy had a qualification that did not as white guy had no qualification to run the plant, but he did it efficiently and timelessly for 30 years. And here we get a guy that has all the paperwork backing him, and he ran it to the ground where over 40% of engine actually shut its doors where we actually import and refine fuel. Now, with that in mind, if we look at South Africa, everyone's looking for degrees. Everyone's looking for honors. Everyone's looking for bachelors. Everyone has to have some form of thing. Obviously, we have a lack of artisans, right? But then we, if you had to consider look at a broader spectrum, we opened our doors. We've got over a million foreigners into this country. If you look at the builders, today, blatantly, the guys will say the Malawians are the best builders, the best craftsmen, the best uh, building guys. So what happens? We are losing money. Our infrastructure has collapsed. 
Now, obviously, there will be a shortage of artisans because everyone is teaching the kids, no, you, you'd rather get a qualification because it entitles you to go overseas. And funny enough, my father said exactly what I did. My daughter is studying honors. My son is doing business at the period of time and he's first year. Right. And the whole purpose behind it is I expect to give them an education that will hold some weight in an overseas market because we've got to keep ourselves open to an overseas market. So when the uh, 28 years ago, we found an influx of people leaving this country and most of them were artisans. If you look at the, this country, the government itself, Every time there's a problem at ESCOM or anywhere, you find they will actually get people from overseas countries to come and sort out our problem. It's a slap in our face because it shows no confidence in our own people. But really speaking, our people are one of the best. We are the hardest working, be it across the border against all race groups. We picked up the country all along. Now we are on a downslide, you know, so... Uh, well, obviously, there will be easy for the ministers to actually say, you know what, we have, we need at least 60% of rollouts from metric to actually be artisans because we have a lack of it. But did they create an infrastructure that accommodates the 60%? Because we have so much of unemployment, we have so much of people that is qualified artisans, we have so much of people that actually pull their jewels, they, they went through the whole nine yards, that is sitting at home with no job. So what 60% are we, or is the minister really talking about? Job creation is something the minister needs to take care of. Our government needs to, you know, deploy ideas. So there's a venture out there that can grasp the nation so we can build as one. But if the government has not done that, it's easy to throw out number 60% or whatever the case is. But obviously they have to have something in plan, something that in the foreseeable future there is a future for our children. And obviously we'll want mechanics, we'll want carpenters, we'll want plumbers in our families. But at the period of time, at this present moment, no overseas company is that of us. And you know, so Brother Shafar, that once again is the blame and the fault of our government solely. Yes, Anwar, uh, totally uh, uh, on the ball there. And uh, yeah, finally, you know, the price of uh, potato chips are expected to return to normal. You know, these potato chips that I think you get the pre-packed and so forth. Uh, what's your views on that? Uh, you know, uh, the price of petrol, you know, goes like a yo-yo. But recently, the price of uh, potato chips was uh, like uh, really skyrocketed. I mean, maybe went 100% up, but uh, they say it's going to go back to normal. Uh, your thoughts today? If we look at our potato farmers, very, very briefly in South Africa, 80% of that uh, potato farming actually goes to McCain's itself. So they hold the monopoly on potato, right? And we left with a balance of 20%. Right. At that 20%, it does not service all the restaurants, all the takeaways, all the fast food outlets we have. So obviously we have a lack of potato chips coming to the country. Now, we all know the government does not impose uh, a tax on the potato that you buy for your home. But obviously what he has done, being as brilliant as he is, he imposed a 60% levy on all imported fries that comes into the country. And obviously that 60% was actually, once it lands into our show, we've got to actually uh, account or pay for that 60%. So what he's actually done is he's dropping the, the, the figures down to about 20-odd percent, the way it might most probably neutralize the market as such, you know. But the fact of the matter, for the period of time that he imposed a 60% law of all imported chips, you know, we would say, right, 
a lot could have been done in that period of time because, once again, the layman on the street, he suffers the most. You go to one of the fast food outlets and you buy uh, uh, burger and chips for a sake. You're paying that 60% extra. Yet the government clearly states there won't be taxes in South Africa when it concerns uh, potato chips. But obviously, he taxes it before it even reaches our shores. So he's already made his money prior to it actually touching our shores. So, well, Shafat, that once again, you know, we just have to wait and see. In our country, I think we all are absorbent to the fact that we live in a Euro country. The one day the petrol goes low, the next day it goes high. How they figure out the 58 cents increase, 27 cents increase, I really don't know. We can get to that to another lengthy issue. But at the same period of time, we live in a yo-yo country. So what is said and done today might not hold uh, water for the following month or the months to come. So obviously we live in a very unpredictable society and country. Well said, Dan. What the beauty of having you on the segment is that besides you being a world-class mechanic, you're also an economist and also an academic. I really enjoy you on the segment. Perhaps your your parting words this evening. Well, alhamdulillah, you know, I've only got one thing for all people. You know the frustration when you meet people, beat a layman, beat in one of the malls, and you find that everyone is stressed, Brother Shafat, and that it worries me. There's no time for happiness in a country we live in, and it saddens me because I travel abroad quite often, and I, I look at people. You know, people is the best character of the country you come from, and you find people are stressing, you know, financial strain, losses, death. Uh, there's so many things. People are experiencing some thought form of negativity in their life. But Hamza, you know what I found, is a masjid. You know, it gives you peace of mind. You know, you don't need to read, even if you don't sit on the Bursala, just somehow find a safe zone in your mind and take off all the negativity in this dunya because this world is very, very short, brother Shafat. So inshallah, our people out there, you know, negativity of life, one of the first things we've got to do is protect the body and the mind. You know, it is said so clearly, especially for our Muslims. So people, we need to adjust our mindset because all this that we go through in this country, especially, is just a test from this dunya. And it is, it, it is a test that we'll be leaving this dunya very, very shortly. So let's at least leave it with a smile on our face. And what a beautiful words indeed, a wholesome words indeed, body, mind, and soul, as long as you're not doing any panel beating here and there. Anwar, you have a blessed evening ahead. I will talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we will continue after that.